chapter. So let's open with a word of prayer and we'll dig into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We ask now as we go to your word that, your man, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. Thank you for everyone who's here in person, for those that are watching on live stream. I know it's back to school and many are watching from home. Those that will hear this later on the radio, Lord, may your word go forth with power. Lord, may you minister to every heart. Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight that's going through a difficult time. May they be strengthened and encouraged in the, in the most holy faith. Uh, we pray for all of us that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. So be glorified tonight in everything that happens here. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, okay, so to catch you up, Second Chron- First and Second Chronicles were written by Ezra to the, Babylon- the, the captives who had been in Babylon for 70 years, and now they're returning to Jerusalem. But because they'd been there for 70 years, many of them had no idea of really what the history of the Jews really was. So Second Chronicles, First Chronicles looked at the life of King David, and Second Chronicles started with King Solomon, and we've been moving forward from there. Now, as we come to chapter 32, the last several weeks, we've been looking at a man by the name of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah's dad was a, a king by the name of Ahaz. And Ahaz, you could argue, was the most evil king that Judah ever had. Now, Judah is the southern two kingdoms of Israel, and then the northern ten kingdoms were called Israel, and they had been split apart for, for, for many, many, many decades. Now, Israel, by this point, has been taken captive by Assyria. Ahaz was the most evil king, and Ahaz so evil that he turned the temple into a trash heap. He then stopped all the worship of the true and living God. He started having human sacrifices to the false idols, one by the name of Molech, where they'd heat up its hands and burn babies alive. Uh, immorality was running rampant. They had every idol you can possibly imagine. And so he was this man that was so ungodly. So when he died and his son took over, you would almost expect that Hezekiah would have learned, unfortunately, by following his dad's footsteps. He does just the opposite. If you were here three weeks ago, we saw that as soon as he became king, he was 25 years old, he was a young man, The first thing he did was make God the priority. So even though the Assyrians were just to the north, and and we'll talk about them a lot tonight, very evil, wicked people, and they were wiping out kingdoms as they went along, and that was a definite threat. All the idols were still being worshipped throughout the land. But what he did was, the first thing he did was he cleaned up the temple. He took all the trash out of the temple. Then he restored the temple. Then he started the sacrificial system again. Then he reinstated Passover. They had not been celebrating Passover for 200 years. He starts them celebrating Passover. Passover is looking back to their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt, but it looks forward. They don't know that in this text, but we do. It looks forward to the cross of Calvary because the only way that they were delivered out of bondage was the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross. The angel of death would pass over. If you didn't have it, the firstborn son would die. So Hezekiah makes a stand for the things of God, and God blesses him. And at the end of the first few chapters, we see that uh, the people are, are blessed and excited. They're worshiping the true and living God again. They wanted a whole nother week. They had a week, they had Passover and a feast of leavened bread, said, can we just keep worshiping? And then we saw last week that he encouraged people to give so they could reestablish the priests and the Levites So they could have people that spent their entire time focusing on making sure the sacrificial system continued. He didn't want them to be CEO Christians, not just Christmas and Easter only, right? He didn't want them just coming once a year. He wanted this to be more than just Passover, but to truly being walking with the Lord again as a people. So he's taking a stand for the things of God. Hezekiah has reestablished worship. He's reestab- He's gotten rid of, he goes out and he gets rid of all the idols. As soon as those people started worshiping the Lord again, they all got together and got rid of every idol in the territory, threw them all out, got rid of them, tore down the altars, tore down the high places. So they're headed in the right direction. Now look at the last two verses of chapter 31 there, and then we'll get into the, this chapter. 
It says, thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every, every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law of the commandment to seek his God, he did it all with his heart, so he prospered. So this guy is sold out for the Lord. He's honoring God. And because he is, God is blessing him. Now, this is not a name it and claim it. You know, we give to God so we get stuff back. It's because he loved the Lord that he was being faithful. And because he was being faithful, he was prospering. So finally, after all these, those years with his dad, 25 years of serving as an evil, wicked king, we now have a godly king. But here's the thing that happens. You would think with everything being so wonderful that the next chapter would just talk about how it just continued that way forever. But as we're going to see in tonight's text, that's not what happens. If you have your outline, grab it. I tell the message, the spiritual battle we fight every day. Now for us, the applications are going to be more for us on a daily basis. Certainly the spiritual battle that's going to take place in tonight's text is heavy. It's very heavy. And we're going to see that King Hezekiah has got to figure out how to respond to all these threats that are going on around him. So I tell the message, the spiritual battle we fight today, first, you can't be used mightily by God without attracting enemies. You know, in scripture, everybody used mightily suffers greatly. And so if you're being faithful to be used for the kingdom of God, you can expect that the enemy's not going to just sit back and let it go. Now, his resources are limited. He's not omniscient. He's not everywhere all at once. But he's going to go after those that are being used by God. We'll see that in tonight's text. Then we see, we'll see, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. As we're fighting that spiritual battle every single day, we need not be fearful. We need not be weary. We need not be anxious. Those are all things that we can have from time to time. And we just ask, we need the Lord to help us with that because we all have struggled with those things from time to time. But as believers, we need to remember who's on the throne. We need to remember who's in control. We need to remember that our God is greater than any enemy we're going to face. We're going to see that these Assyrians are coming to attack. And Hezekiah, knowing what kind of evil, wicked men they are, it's a fearful thing if you don't keep your eyes on God. Number three, one of the enemy's greatest tactics is to get you to doubt or question your faith. Right now, there's this big thing called deconstructing your faith. And it makes me just want to throw up. But it's people who say, well, yeah, I was a Christian and then some things happened in my life or I see things happening around me, so now I just don't believe anymore. And what's happened is, I don't believe they were ever saved, but what happens is that they have their faith challenged. You know, and a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And as believers, we should know the word well enough that we're not going to be stumbled by somebody asking us a difficult question. Amen? We should be able to respond. And if not, we should be able to go back and get the answer. But one of the things he's going to do is question and get you to question your faith. The same thing that Satan did in the garden to Adam and Eve. What did he say to Eve? Did God really say? They want to get you to, to challenge and question the word of God. Number four, we're going to see God will not be mocked. This chapter has some of that most heavy mocking of God you'll see in the Bible, where Sennacherib, who's the head of the Assyrians, he's their king, he is going to mock God like few other people in the entire Bible. So full of himself, so arrogant, sounds like a lot of people in our country today, where we just mock, where God is being mocked, his name is being cursed, and we're going to see that God will not tolerate being marked. He suffers long, but he won't suffer always. Number five, prepare like it depends on you. Pray knowing that without him, you can do nothing. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, do your best and then commit the rest. And what that means is that as believers, uh, I'll just use the example because I'm here, or if you're a Sunday school teacher. I mean, I, if I just got up here without studying, that would be a mess. And it would be my fault. Amen? So I study as if it all depends on me, but I pray knowing it all depends on him. Does that make sense? So we want to be prepared. We want to be prayed up. We want to do everything as unto the Lord. And we're going to see that in tonight's text that that's going to be something that is going to be a challenge for the people in Judah. Number six, remain humble, broken, and usable for the kingdom of God. We're going to sadly see that once again, pride rises up. And when pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, who's the most proud being that's ever been? Who is it? Satan. 
And he got thrown out of heaven. He thought he could overthrow God. He still thinks he could win the battle in the end. But when we're prideful, we're being Satan-like. And when we're being humble, we're being Christ-like. And then finally, may we finish strong. As believers, we don't ever retire, right? I mean, you might retire from your, from your job, but you never retire from being somebody who studies the word and prays and ministers to people. And we should finish strong for the Lord with whatever time we have left on this planet. So let's begin there, looking at the spiritual battle we fight every day. You can't be used mightily by God without attracting enemies. So look what it says there in verse 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 32. It says, after these deeds of faithfulness. So all those deeds we had talked about, cleanse the temple, repair the temple, reestablish the sacrificial system, reestablish Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, brought in musical instruments, reinstituted worship, tore down all the idols, put the focus back on the Lord, took a stand for God, made God the priority and the passion. So he's done all of those things. And it says there, after these deeds, and again, you would think because of his faithfulness that he would, have, you know, it would say he lived happily ever after. But going from, or going from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience, our tendency is to think that when we are genuinely faithful to God, we're immune from bad stuff. Well, just the opposite is true. Because every, those who are being used mightily, again, are often those who suffer greatly. The experience of Hezekiah in tonight's text and other men and women of God tell us otherwise. And again, you cannot, I, I challenge you, find one for me. Show me somebody in the Bible that was used mightily that didn't suffer greatly. It would seem to be a strange answer from God to the faithfulness of his child that a strong foe at that moment would invade the kingdom. Yet how often this is the experience of the people of God. Again, you can't be great for God without attracting enemies. I used to say this, that I hope I'm on Satan's 10 most wanted list, but you know, the reality is, I mean, I don't, he's not on the president. He doesn't even know everybody. He doesn't even know all your names. He doesn't. He's a, he's a created being. He's not the creator. He's not the opposite of God. Amen? And so he's got re limited resources. A third of the angels fell with him from heaven. That's a lot. A lot of demonic stuff. And again, we're going to see there's multiple enemies, not just the enemy that can take us off track. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, the apostle Paul said this, for a great and effective door has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. Here's what he says. A great door has been opened and then the enemy shows up. So God opens a door to use you for his kingdom and for his glory. Don't be surprised if the enemy shows up. Because the enemy, you know what happens? When God is doing great things, the enemy hates it. When people are getting saved, when lives are being changed, when God is being glorified, he hates it. He wants to put a stop to it. He wants to silence it. So we shouldn't be surprised. Enemies' resources are limited. And again, he goes after those that are being used mightily by the Lord. Then it says at the second half of verse 1 there, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them all over to himself. So when Hezekiah first became king, some years have gone by now, when he first became king, he cut off all ties with Assyria. Prior to that, his father and others were paying tributes to the Assyrians. Now, let me just tell you about the Assyrians. They were the most wicked military on the planet and the one that people on the planet feared more than any other. They were ruthless and they were brutal. They would go into a village and they would not only kill everyone, they would decapitate them all and then pile up their heads on a huge pyramid outside of where the little village was, not to scare off the people in the village, they're all dead, but to let everybody else know, if we come to your village, you better surrender or that's going to be you. They would sometimes skin the people that they killed and take their skin and plaster it on the walls of the fortress that they had just invaded. 
They weren't just trying to win victories. They wanted to crush people. They wanted to strike fear into people. So here these Assyrians are. They're mounted up just north of Judah. They're ready to come in and to attack. And Sennacherib, uh, again, he's going to start by all these, there's all these fortresses throughout Judah. He's going to capture about 46 of them. So what happens is they have all these smaller fortresses, all trying to keep the enemy from getting to Jerusalem. So they have all these smaller places. And so Sennacherib's coming in with his army and they're slaughtering people left and right. And now you're the king. And so far, for many years now, things are going well. And God's been blessing you. And now you get word they're coming. And they're coming for you. And they're coming for your people. And they're as wicked and evil as they get. Now, we know from 2 Kings that because they were so ruthless, and you can turn there later if you want, it's in chapter 17. And what happened was that, chapter 18, 17, 18, 19, right in there, what happens is that Hezekiah tries to negotiate with Sennacherib. He's like, it's not here in this text, this is more abbreviated, but he basically says, hey, I'll give you gold and silver if you'll just leave us alone. And so Sennacherib kind of gives him how much he wants, and it's so much gold and silver that he has to melt the gold off the temple and bring it. He has to pull gold off doors that are covered in gold, and he takes it all to Sennacherib, and then when he gets it, he's like, yeah, we're going to come kill you anyway, which is what the devil does. Amen? He promises you, well, just feed me once and it'll go away. Just feed your flesh this one time and you'll get it out of your system. And the reality is your flesh will never be satisfied. Amen? So here's this evil, wicked, wicked king. And it says he had camped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over himself. During his campaign that goes for, this actually will take place for many, many years. But during that time, he invaded 46 Judean towns and again, he was brutal in every single case. Here's the lesson. That as we walk with the Lord, difficult times are going to come. Amen? The Bible says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And if we just end right there, that's kind of a hard thing to walk away from here tonight. But here's the reality. Those trials are coming, but the good news is you're never going to go through a trial ever alone. Amen? Because the Lord is with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So when the trials come, it's really not about how strong you are as to how you react to it or how it's going to happen. Here's what it really comes down to. What are you standing on, and what is your foundation? The Bible says the wise man built his house upon the rock, and the foolish man built his house upon the And when the rain came down, the guy that built on the sand, it crumbled. And the guy who built on the rock stood firm. And guys, if we're standing on Jesus Christ, no matter what trial in this life we may go through, he is the foundation that will allow us to continue to stand all the way through it. Amen? Because he is a faithful, faithful God. Sometimes when bad things happen, we respond like Job's friends and say stuff like, you must have done something really bad. And a lot of times people will say that. I had someone say to me not too long ago, our church in Santa Cruz grew really fast and really, really big. And someone basically said to me through somebody else, well, his church isn't growing because he didn't raise his kids right and his son died and it was his fault that his son's dead. And that's why God's not blessing his church because he's outside of God's will. And you're like, wow, glad I got friends like that. Can I get an amen? But here's the good news. I don't care what men say. I just care what God says. And we need to be faithful. And guys, people are going to come after you and say things to you that aren't nice. But we live in an ungodly world. Amen? And we need to know that that's going to happen sometimes. And we don't trust in men. We trust in the Lord. And our God is faithful. And so here's Hezekiah. What's he going to do? So he tried the money thing. That didn't work. That's in 2 Kings. So now Sennacherib is going to start taking more steps toward him. And Hezekiah, what are you going to do, bro? How are you going to respond? So far, he's been a godly man. So far, he's been faithful. But now we're going to see how he responds in a very difficult time. Again, a wise man builds his house upon a rock. And there's two kinds of people in Jesus' story. They heard the same thing. One obeyed and built upon the rock, and one did not obey. And guys, the point of the story is not how to avoid bad things. The point is how to survive them. 
You know who I love to hear teach the Bible? People who've gone through great trials and remain faithful. That they just remain steadfast. Not that they don't grieve. Not that they don't weep. Not that they don't go through difficulty. But again, in the midst of all of it, they just keep their eyes on Jesus and they don't fall apart. A faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Faithful obedience does not rid us of our trials and difficulties or attacks of the enemy. It just gives us the solid foundation to stand on in the midst of the storm. Sennacherib was conquering the fortified cities as he moved toward the ultimate goal, Jerusalem. And these fortified cities would, again, were placed throughout the territory. And no doubt, word keeps coming back to Hezekiah. He got another one. More of our people are dead. He's getting closer. Hezekiah is the king. He's responsible for the people. What is he going to do? So point number one, you can't be used mightily by God without attracting enemies. Hezekiah had turned things around by the grace of God in Judah. Worship was back. Praise was back. Sacrificial system was back. The priests and the Levites were back serving. God was being glorified. All the altars have been torn down. All the false gods have been destroyed. All the idols are gone. And what happens? The enemy shows up. Point number two, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Now, that's easier said than done. If you knew that somebody who decapitates entire villages of people was trying to hunt you down, you might have a little fear. And that would be understandable. And Hezekiah isn't just responsible for himself. He's the king. He's responsible for the whole kingdom. Look at verse 2. It says in verse 2, And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come, and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. So the first thing, you know, when they were coming to fight against Jerusalem, what does he do? He goes and seeks godly counsel. And this is what we should do when we're going through a trial. Don't try to go through it alone. The Bible says a three-chord strand is not easily broken. We need other people to hold up our hands during times of difficulty. People that can give us godly, sound advice. People that can put their arm around us and pray with us and encourage us during difficult times. So he turns to his leaders. That word there, uh, one of the words that the word there for um, consulted with his leaders and commanders. The word commanders there is mighty men. You know, it's amazing in the Bible, mighty men is mentioned a lot of times and virtually every time it's mighty men of godly men. You know, godly men have mighty men. David had mighty men, right? Godly men had mighty men that walked alongside them. And you know what? When someone's, you know, sold out for the Lord, it's easy to have other people come alongside them to walk alongside them. And King Hezekiah has men like that. He knew that Assyria wanted to conquer his kingdom. He consults with his leaders to ask them, what should we do? And again, wise men seek godly counsel from other mighty men. The Bible says there's wisdom in the counsel of many. Now, here's what he's preparing for. He talks to the guys and says, okay, we got to make sure that the springs stay within Jerusalem. So here's the plan of Sennacherib. This is not a little village. This is Jerusalem. So there are great walls around Jerusalem. He's not going to be able to just go through Jerusalem like he goes through a village. So instead, what they typically would do, and that's what they're going to do here, is they, do, they call it a siege. And what a siege is, is where they surround it, don't let anything in or anything out, and they basically starve the people out or make them die of thirst. So seeking godly counsel, seeking the Lord, being a godly man, first thing he thinks of, we need to make sure that the water cannot go out to them, but only stays here for us. If they're out there in a siege, we're going to have to keep the water from getting to them so they all die of thirst and make sure those springs are flowing inside Jerusalem so all of our people will never be thirsty. So he's preparing for the battle and he's asking for godly counsel. And if you're going to Israel with us in January, we are going to go to Hezekiah's tunnel. And if it's open, we're going to walk through it. And usually when you walk through it, it has water in it. And what's amazing about it is the, the, the advanced technology that they use is amazing. And what they were able to do was to get these two springs, both flowing through tunnels, landing in one spot, and none of the water going on the outside to make sure that their people were cared for. And I love that. 
So yeah, there's a military battle to fight, but there's other things that need wisdom. And you know, you know there's got to be a connection with the first thing they want to make sure that they have is water, because living water is a picture of, what, of who? Holy Spirit. And you know, the first thing we need when we're in a battle is we need to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. We need to be walking in, again, the fullness of him. In preparation, he gathers the people together. They stopped all the springs in the brook that ran through the land. And Jerusalem's water supply, again, was very vulnerable to attack. But now that they had it all flowing inward and no water going outward, again, they were unable to the, the guys on the outside where they had no access to water and it made sure that they could endure the siege for much, much longer. It says there, thus many people gathered together, stopped all the springs in the brook that ran through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? You know, the key point here is prepare before the siege comes, not when the enemy's attacking. You know, for us as believers, if we wait Till the moment we're, we're in the midst of temptation, we're probably going to fail. But we need to practice, we need to be prepared beforehand. Amen? If you know there's something that tempts you every day, you need to begin your day asking the Lord to help you. You know what the enemy does? He tries to feed the appetites that your flesh wants, but we need to let those appetites be fed by the Lord, not by the things of the world. Amen? Because what the Lord has is so much better. Be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't need spirits, we got the Spirit. Amen? And God can satisfy it. And so the prayer should be in the morning, Lord, you know that I struggle with this. Lord, help me today to stay clear of that. Help me, Lord, when I'm tempted, resist the devil. And he will what? He flees from you. And so we want to make sure that there's preparation. So he's preparing. They haven't gotten to Jerusalem yet. But he's getting ready because he knows they're coming. And here's the reality. Temptation's coming. Trials are coming. The enemy knows what your weakness is. He, you know, like I always say, he can't tempt me with Brussels sprouts. I hate them. So you could leave them in my driveway. You could bring 5,000 pounds of it. I'm never eating it. If he wants to tempt me, try tip. Not Brussels sprouts, right? So the enemy knows what your weakness is, and he's going to tempt you with whatever that is. And so here they are. They're preparing, knowing the enemy's coming. We know what his plot will be. We need to prepare before he gets here. Be prepared spiritually before the temptation comes. If you wait for the attack to come, it will be too late to get ready. Now he says there, why should the kings of Assyria come and find water? The one thing we don't ever want to do is strengthen the enemy. We don't want to feed the enemy. I was a youth pastor for 15 years, as most of you know, and I used to use the analogy, you have the fleshly tiger and the spiritual tiger, which one wins the battle, the one you feed the most? If you feed your spirit, you're in prayer, if you're in the word, if you're around other believers, you're going to be spiritually strong. If all you do is feed your flesh all day, you never spend any time with the Lord, you're not, you're not spending time in prayer, you're not in the word, then what's going to happen? You're going to lose those battles daily. And so that battle takes place. And so what we got to do is put the enemy to death. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Like we're not going to let the enemy survive. Now, there are three types of forces that we would call the enemy. I'll go through this quickly, but they are the three things we struggle with is the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The world is the stuff around us that tempts us. The flesh are the desire. Now, most of it is just plain us. It's not as much Satan tempting us as it's just plain stinking us wanting stuff that we know we shouldn't have, amen? Sometimes the word flesh means the kind of stuff you can touch, but here it's talking about that part of you that sin nature, the part that loves to do what's wrong. Then the world is the system that we live in that teaches us to hate God, to be rebellious. It's stuff around us that appeals to our sin nature. Yesterday, my son came down here to, to vi- for a quick visit, and he's going to start a hauling, maybe start a hauling business like his brothers had. And so I went with him to go buy a truck. And we found a truck. We bought the truck yesterday. We brought it home. He's very happy. Well, it's so funny because the guy I'm talking to, uh, he knows I'm a pastor because everybody knows within 15 seconds because I tell them, okay? I just look for divine appointments. So, yeah, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. Yeah. So I'm talking to him about the Lord. And so he's filling out the thing on the price. He's like, well, look, the taxes are based on what I fill out here. I could just put a lot lower number. You wouldn't have to pay any taxes. I'm like, no, put the right number there, bro. He goes, but you don't have to do that. stupid. You're giving more money to the government than you have to. No, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Amen? Here's the point. When you tell people you're a Christian, you better act like one. 
Amen? Yeah, I'm a born-again believer. I'm a pastor. Yeah, put a dollar fifty on there. Yeah, we don't want to pay any taxes. No, we don't do that. Amen? But what did the flesh, your flesh thinks about it for a minute. I'm going to have to give the government $1,000, you know, in taxes on this stuff. Guys, we want to honor God no matter what. Amen? Honor him. Do what's right. And then we have the devil. He's a powerful, invisible, created being who leads other fallen angels. He's the mastermind behind the forces we face. And again, they're all horrible, fearful enemies. And one part is a little closer than the others, and that would be our flesh. So we need to be careful that we don't make it easy for the enemy to have access to us. Watch what you entertain yourself with. What's on your phone right? What does Pastor Joshua call this? Digital crack, right? And, you know, we have access to everything on here. And in some ways that can be good for certain things in life. You can watch messages on here. You can look up Bible verse. You can, you can do all that kind of stuff, right? You can change pictures of your grandkids. That's all wonderful. But you also have access to pornography. You have access to gambling. You have access to dating sites when you're married. It's a mess. And so we have to purpose ahead of time. We can't wait Till that last minute. Again, sometimes one of the ways Satan gets a toehold in our flesh is another thing that he uses is anger. The Bible says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think anger and drunkenness are not too far apart because when you're angry or you're drunk, you make really dumb decisions. Amen? And you don't represent the Lord well. You know, I went out and got drunk and went out and made a bunch of great decisions, said nobody ever. Amen? And I was really angry, and I totally acted with composure and kindness, said nobody ever. And so the things the enemy will use, he'll use anger, he'll use drunkenness. He wants you to feed your flesh, and he wants to get you off track and away from the Lord. The flesh is a place of appetites, and our sin's nature has a hunger for things that are forbidden and wrong. Help us, Lord to flee from those things. Verse five, and he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised up towers and built another wall outside. Also, he repaired the Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. So here's what he does. He knows the enemy's coming. So now that he got the water supply, the next thing he does, we got to fix these walls. And so he goes around and he's repairing the, the wall on the inside. There are still portions of Hezekiah's wall from this chapter that we will see in Israel. And that wall is about as thick as from here to that curtain. And it went all the way around on the outside, a whole nother wall he built to protect and keep the enemy out. See guys, if we want to keep the enemy away, we've got to build up walls. You know, the wall that we build spiritually, again, is walking in the spirit. It's spending time with the Lord, having communion with God. Guys, when, when we walk with the Lord, we don't want to sin. And we hate it when we do. Amen? And so he puts up walls. He's preparing. Like, look, I need to protect these people. The enemy is coming and he's ruthless. He wants us all dead. He wants to cut all our heads off. He wants to mock us. He's coming after us. And we need to be prepared. Let me say this too. The enemy's coming after your kids. He's coming after your grandkids. And you know the thing we need to do? We need to be praying for our kids. Pray for my kids by name, all my grandkids, every single day. From the day they were born, pray for them. Pray God's hand of protection upon them. Raise up a child in the way that he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Guys, the enemy wants to destroy. How in the world do you have drag queens reading stories to kids and everybody thinks that's okay, but if a man prays at school, it's a problem. Guys, we live in a wicked world right now, amen? And somebody's got to stand up and go, this is wrong, and, and put up walls around things that are ungodly. A milo is kind of like a tower that would be on the outside of the wall, and it would be a place that they could view great distances. They could also you know, be offensive with weapons. So he, he builds these all around the city. He builds a whole other wall around the wall that's on the inside. He's preparing for battle. He wants to be ready when the enemy comes. You know why? Because it was a matter of life and death. This was no joke. They couldn't just slough it off. If they didn't do anything, they'd all be dead in a few days. And so the same is true for us. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternity. You know, you know amen? It's a matter of have, living a life that is effective for the kingdom of God. The walls we put up, I think the two main ones would be prayer and the word. 
Pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. Guys, we can talk to Almighty God anywhere and anytime we want to. Why don't we do that more? And I didn't get an amen for that. Should we do that more? When we, here's what I always say. When we get to heaven, I'm going to see God for who he is, and I'm going to go, dude, I should have prayed more. Amen? When we see just how powerful he is, and why in the world would I go to anyone else but to him? But prayer puts up a wall. It helps, helps us remain steadfast and focus on the Lord. But also the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you want, you want to have deeper faith, spend more time in the word. I've been getting up every morning for a while now, and I just read, I've just been reading through Psalms over and over. And I'll tell you what, I, I read 10 Psalms, and I just, I just feel like I've been hanging out with the Lord. Amen? It just ministers to my heart. I feel close to God. I'm ministered to by him. And I, want to, and I know that the enemy wants you to do anything but read your Bible. He'll get home, you'll be so busy doing everything else, you won't have time for God's word. If you don't have time for it, the walls are down, the enemy's coming, and it's going to be hard to fight off if you're doing it in your own strength. Do you spend time with the Lord every day? When you're the Thursday night crowd, you probably do. I hope you do. The Bible says you desire the word of God more than your necessary food. I know you eat more than once a week. Can I get an amen to that? So we desire the word of God more than our necessary food. Verse 6. Then it says there, then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him, and opened square in the city gate and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. Now, they needed walls, and they needed water, but you know what else they needed? They needed an army that was dedicated, faithful, and not afraid. Amen? So what does he do? He puts the walls up. He makes sure the water's there. And now he's exhorting and encouraging his guys, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Now, why would you have to tell people not to be afraid? Because they're afraid. You tell them not to be afraid because they're afraid. You tell kids don't cry because they're crying. You don't tell them before they're crying, don't cry. They weren't crying. And they're afraid. And you know why they're afraid? Because they're looking at things from a physical perspective. And what he tells them at the end of the verse, yeah, they've got 180,000 guys in their army. Yeah, they're coming down. Or yeah, they've been slaughtering people all over the place. Yeah, they're ruthless. Guess what? There's more on our side than their side. What's he talking about? The Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. You plus God is a majority. Guys, if God is on our side, it doesn't matter how big the enemy is. It doesn't matter how many people they have. Our God said light is and light was. If you've been here for Revelation, there's angels in Revelation. One of them's got one foot on the earth and one foot in the sand. How big is that angel? We're going to see in tonight's text that one angel is going to kill 185,000 men. Me and one, not God, an angel one of his creation, just one of them. So if there's an army of 185,000 coming and you got an angel next to you, we win. God is for us, amen? And what he's telling them is, look, don't be afraid because God's with us. Don't Remember Elisha? Remember when they were out and his, and his servant was scared half to death and, he's, and the, the army's mounting around him and he prays and says, Lord, open his eyes. And he opens his eyes and what does he see? Angels and chariots surrounding behind the army that's coming to attack them. Guys, when we fight these battles, we are not alone. And it is a spiritual battle that we fight. And if the Lord opened our eyes for five minutes, we would see the angelic host that's all around us. Amen? And so he's encouraging them because the Assyrians, do you think that would spread rumors? Do those guys cut everybody's heads off? Those are guys that they skin their skin and put it on the wall. They're ruthless. We just send them money. They say they don't care. They're coming for us anyway. And you got people just panicking and all these words are going back and forth. And praise God for Hezekiah. Everybody get in the center square. Get in here. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. There's more on our side than their side. You don't have to worry. God is for us. Who can be against us? Amen? Now, it doesn't mean no one's against you. It just means no one can do anything to you unless God allows it. Do you know that nothing can happen to you unless it passed through God's hands first? And does not bring you peace in every situation knowing that our God is in control. 
Hezekiah understood that the defense of Judah didn't just depend again on the walls and the towers and the shields and the weapons and the water, but strength, courage, and determination of their soldiers. Tells them not to be afraid because looking at the ruthless Assyrian army, they felt outnumbered and afraid. We too should be an encouragement to others. Amen? How many guys need other believers in your life to encourage you? We need Barnabases, right? Son of encouragement. Every time you see that brother just about in the Bible, he's encouraging somebody. Team Barnabas, we used to have my old youth group. Kids that just, just encouraged other people. We need that. And here he is, he's encouraging them and he's strengthening them, them in, the, in their walk. Hebrews 10, it says this, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Let us consider one another to pr- provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. The closer we get to the return of the Lord, the more we need to be encouraging each other. Amen? Notice he says there in verse 7 at the end there, for there are more with us than with him. Life can be pretty scary at times, but the good news is Our side is bigger. Our side is stronger. I've read the end of the book. Our side wins. Amen? And we can take that to the bank. You plus God, again, is the majority and censure for us who can be against us. Verse 8. And it says there in verse 8, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us, the Lord our God, to help us to fight our battles And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. See, when somebody stands and proclaims the truth of God's word and does it with boldness, it's going to be a source of encouragement to everybody that hears it. Amen? They're going to be strengthened in knowing, yes, that's right, our God is in control. That's right, they've got a bunch of army, they've got a bunch of military, but we've got the creator of the universe on our side. Jesus got my back. Amen? And that's who's for me, and I don't have to be afraid, and we need to be reminded of that, and we need to encourage each other with those words. Sennacherib and the Assyrian army is great in physical numbers and strength and skills for battle, but we have Almighty God for us. It says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And while there are those that are against us, none can have victory over us. Emmanuel means God what? God with us. The people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah. They're resting in the word of God. And that's the thing that can give you peace and give you rest, even in the midst of the greatest storms. So point number two there, in the spiritual battle we fight every day, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. We're never alone when we're under attack. The Lord is with us to help us fight our battles. By the way, all the pastors at this church, cell phone numbers are on the church website I'm assuming, if you don't all have my cell phone number already, you should have it. And you know what? I don't care if it's three o'clock in the morning and you're going through a tough time, you can pick up the phone and the pastors will answer. Not that we're anything special, but we're here to serve you guys, to be listening ears, to pray for you, to love you, and to serve you any way that we can. Don't go through any of this alone. Amen? We want to encourage each other and love on each other. Point number three, one of the enemy's greatest tactics is to get you to doubt or question your faith. So after this, so he's encouraged the people. They're encouraged. Okay, praise God. God's on our side. You're right. We're ready. Let's go. Then here's what happens. After this, Sennacherib, king of Syria, sent his servants to Jerusalem. But he had all the forces with him that laid siege against Lachish. So Lachish is another one of their fortresses. It's about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So most of the army is down there wiping out another village, slaughtering innocent people on their way to Jerusalem, But he sends a crew to Jerusalem. They're now locked up inside of their fortress. And they're going to come from the outside, and they're going to start trying to make the people on the inside doubt. So he sends this group. And, you know, the the attacks from the enemy typically aren't physical. They're usually more mental and spiritual. They come and they just taunt you, and they want to have you fall apart. So after these encouraging words and... The reminder that God is with them, the enemy and his arrogance attacks. He's going to taunt them and then mock Almighty God. We have God's promises. We know the truth. Notice what it says there in verse 9. He came against them to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus said Sennacherib, king of Assyria. So they're speaking for him. And what do you trust? 
that you remained under siege in Jerusalem. Hey, how's that working for you all locked up in there? What are you putting your faith in? By the way, the rest of our army's coming. We slaughter people like you for breakfast. We can't wait. You're going to have to come out at some point. You're going to get hungry. Who's going to protect you? You've heard about us. You should be afraid. So the enemy's being arrogant, coming and attacking them. And then he says in verse 11, does not, did not, does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and thirst, saying the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? So did, so did, your, did your king say, oh, just stay in here, and you're going to stay in there, and you're going to die, because you're putting your faith in some God. That's what he's saying. So he's mocking God, he's mocking the king, he's mocking God's plan, and he's coming full force with arrogance. By the way, just because somebody speaks something with confidence doesn't mean they're right. Amen? I've had discussions with people that were so arrogant and thought they knew everything and they're just plain stupid. I'm sorry. How did a guy text me this week? He said, you know what, pastor, you probably should step down from ministry because you think King Saul became Paul the apostle and that didn't happen. I'm like, bro, have you read the book of Acts? Because it's all over the book of Acts. And he keeps writing me stuff. I'm like, bro, Let's sit down and have a cup of coffee because obviously you got another problem if you're arguing about that, that Saul's not Paul. Come on, man. But what it is is people that they're, they're, they wanna, they're yelling at you. Just because they're yelling doesn't mean they're right. Matter of fact, usually the person yelling is the person who's wrong at the top of their lungs. Amen? So they've come. Where's your God now? You're all going to starve. Look what your king did. He's going to leave you there to die. You should just come on out and join us. And then when you get out of here, we'll kill you because we're ruthless. Why would you remain under siege in Jerusalem? The enemy doesn't want you to trust the Lord. So when you're going through a tough time and you pray and you don't get the answer you want in 30 seconds, he's going to tell you, where's your God now? Why isn't he answering your prayer? If he cared about you, he would have answered right away. That's because your God doesn't exist. Or maybe you're just not a Christian and he doesn't hear you. And see, those are the lies of the enemy. Amen? And he's going to come after you and try to get you to... Doubt God. If you stick with that Hezekiah, you're going to be dead. Look what it says there in verse 11. Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die and again deliver us from the king of Assyria? Verse 12. Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem saying you shall worship before one altar and burn one incense on it? Do you not know that I and my fathers have done all the peoples of other lands? Were, were, were the gods of the nations of these other lands anyway able to deliver their lands out of my hand? So here he is, as arrogant as the day is long. And what is he saying? Look, we fought against a bunch of other lands. They all had gods. They're all dead now. How's your God going to be any different? And by the way, I heard you took down all your altars. So your God's mad at you. So here's another biblically illiterate idiot. Amen? Because what he's telling him is, God's mad at you because you took down the altars. What he doesn't understand is, God is the one who taken him down the altars because all those altars were to false gods. Amen? And so he doesn't even know what he's talking about. By the way, the only verse that every atheist I talk to seems to know is, judge not lest ye be judged. For whatever reason, they always know that verse. And they love to tell you that when you tell them that that's sin and it's wrong. But so here he, here he is, and he's, he's attacking a man who's been faithfully walking with the Lord, and he's telling the people that your God is not going to help you. So much for your God. All these other people had gods. They're all dead now. You're going to be next. And what will happen is if you don't have an intimate relationship with the true and living God, if you don't know the power of the true and living God, you may fall for that trap. The enemy wants you to stop doing good. He, the word of idols being removed had traveled all the way. The Assyrians already knew they tore the idols down. Isn't that amazing? The idols were torn down. That was a big deal. And praise God that Hezekiah took a stand. Look at verse 13 to 15. It says, do you not know what I and my fathers have done in all the peoples and other lands where the gods of their nations, the lands in any way able to deliver them? Verse 14 who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand? 
that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this, and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? This guy's got some me-my-itis, doesn't he? And he thinks that he's greater than our God. And you're going to run into people that are that arrogant. And they're going to challenge your faith. We don't need to get angry. We shouldn't be surprised when people that don't know God act like they don't know God. And we should be able to point them to the truth and stand for the truth and let them challenge us. That's okay. But here's what happens is he's making it clear. He's blaspheming God all the way through. We killed everybody else in our gods. We're going to kill you and your God. Your God doesn't even exist. How are you going to stop us? Nobody delivered you out of my hand. Does this remind you of anybody? Satan, that's for sure, but somebody else. Who's the God that will deliver you out of my hand? Who says that? King Nebuchadnezzar, which is the kingdom that these people are coming home from that are reading this. King Nebuchadnezzar is the one who told Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they would not bow to the golden idol that he had built of himself. He said he was going to throw them in the fiery furnace, and he said, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hand? And the sentence after that, when they were thrown into the fire, and they didn't die and were walking around in the fire, and there was a fourth one in the fire in the likeness of the Son of God, he went from, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands to, come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. Well, that's not what's going to happen here, because they're not going to back off. But we're going to see how that turns out. So the, the Syrian speech intended to destroy their trust in God. And the God of other nations can protect their people. How can your God protect you? Well, because our God is God. Amen? The Bible tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit for a fall. You know, it's one thing to speak against Judah. It's another thing to speak against Hezekiah. It's a whole other thing to speak against Almighty God. If I was in Judah and I heard him talking like that, I'm like, oh, dude, you done it now. You are toast, bro. Let's just sit back and have a gallon of water each because they're all going to be dead soon. Guys, you cannot mock God. God will not be mocked. Now, he suffers long, and we wonder why he hasn't brought vengeance on some people by now. And by God, by his grace, he hasn't. But in the end, if you're, if you're with us in Revelation, there's a time when those who mock God are going to face the consequences. Amen. Now, if they're mocking God, we want to pray that they get saved. But the Assyrians had defeated other gods, but they've never faced the true and living God. They're coming against the almighty God, the creator of all things, the all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful, heavenly host at his command. Destruction coming from the Assyrians and all, for the Assyrians and all who mock God. Point number four, God will not be mocked. So they already started mocking. Look at verse 16. Furthermore, his servants spoke against the Lord God. And against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people in Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and to trouble them that they might take the city. So they're writing letters. They're yelling out, and they got by the wall, and they're shouting up to the guys on the wall because, again, the, the gates are down. They can't get into the city. The siege is to just keep them inside, and they're yelling at them, guess what? And they're saying it in Hebrew to try to convince them, speaking in their own language. You know, the enemies, you know what we call all of this? Writing letters, uh, yelling about it. Uh, saying, you know, speaking against the Lord. It's a good word. It's called propaganda. Amen? It's where somebody just says a bunch of stuff over and over and over trying to get people to believe it, but it's not true. The enemy will use any and every tactic to strike fear into people and to get them to turn away from the true and living God. He seeks to steal, to kill, and destroy. And one of the greatest things the enemy uses is fear. God's not giving us a spirit of fear. When fear comes, run to the Lord, not from him. Point number five, prepare like it depends on you. Praying knowing that with him, praying knowing that with him, without him, excuse me, you can do nothing. So they spoke against God of Jerusalem, verse 19, against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hands. Now, it says, verse 23, now because of his king Hezekiah 
And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. Now, King Hezekiah is hanging out with the prophet Isaiah. And when they hear everything that's going on, what do they do? What does it say in that text? They pray. They come together, they get on their knees, and they cry out to God. We're surrounded by the enemy. Our people are afraid. They've got a siege around us. Lord, we need your help. Have you ever noticed when things are the worst that you cry, you cry out to God the deepest? Amen? The most desperate prayers we pray are in moments when there's nowhere else to turn. And praise God that we have some of those times in our life because it keeps us humble, broken, and desperate. They're provoked by the indignity being done to Jehovah. They're mocking the name of Almighty God, and it drove them to their knees to cry out to the Lord. It says there, then the Lord sent an angel. Notice the word and, A-N, unangels. How many angels is that? The Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria, so that he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with a sword there. How'd that work out, bro? You're mocking the true and living God. You're shaking your fist at him. Who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands? And God, look, they were prepared for battle. Earlier in the chapters, they had made weapons, catapults. They were ready to fight the battle. They, were, they built up towers. They built milos. They made sure they had water. And look what God does. God doesn't use any of it. He just sends an angel. Why did he send an angel? Because two men prayed in desperation for the Lord to help. They cried out to Almighty God, and one angel came down and killed, and we know this from 2 Kings, 185,000 of the baddest dudes on the planet, the most vicious, wicked, wicked people, and one angel took them all out. Guys, that's our God. Amen? God is for us. Who can be against us? Guys, if he can wipe out an 185,000-man army, can he help with cancer? What's the answer? Can he restore a marriage? Can he bring prodigal kids home? Can he bring reconciliation? Can he do all those? He, of course he can. And guys, we have not because we ask not. Our God is greater than all, any circumstance we may face. He may say no, but we want to cry out to him. It says in Isaiah 37, And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made the heaven and the earth. Notice when he prays, he cries out and he says who God is. You're a great God, an awesome God, a holy God, a faithful God. And then he says this. This is in Isaiah 37. Incline my ear, O Lord, and open thine eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, what he sent to reproach the living God of, of a truth. Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their countries, and they've cast their gods, are, their gods into the fire, and for they were no, where there were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, now therefore, O oh Lord, God, save us from the hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God. Lord, wipe them out so they'll know you are God. What were they doing? They were piling up heads of people in pyramids to scare everyone to know that they were vicious and shouldn't be messed with. Well, one angel wiping out the most gnarly army on the planet might let the whole world know there's somebody you don't want to mess with, and that's Almighty God. Amen? God will judge wickedness because he's holy, and he has to. They prepared their army. They prepared their shields. They repaired the old walls. They were prepared, but again, God brought the victory. And how did he bring it? Through answered prayer. We should pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. The Lord sent an angel, and again, 185,000 died. Arrogant mocker was struck down dead in the temple of his God. The God of Judah sent one angel, and the God of Assyria could not protect one man in his own temple. He's in his own temple with his God, and his own kids kill him. So what is his God worth? Nothing. Because his God doesn't exist. Amen? Now again, when, we, when people follow false gods, we should have a burden for them to come to know the true and living God. 
Thankful for their deliverance, they're no longer going to be afraid. They're no longer going to be under siege. There's no more threat from the wicked army. As believers, we too should uh, have no more fear, no more fear of death. What's the worst thing the world could do to me? It's the best thing that could happen to me. You can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? Close your eyes on earth and open them up in glory. We don't have to be afraid. The enemy was defeated at the cross of Calvary. Amen? It is finished, paid in full. Sin has been paid for. We don't have to earn it. God is for us. Point number six. Remain humble, broken, and usable for the kingdom of God. We're almost done. It says there in verse 24, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore wrath was looming over him, over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had been a godly man all the way until now. And what happens is, we know from kings, he got very ill and looked like he was going to die. He cried out to God and God gave him 15 more years of life. But instead of thanking God, he grew kind of arrogant. And because he didn't think, before where he thought he was thanking God for everything, now he ceased to be desperate for God. And that's when we become men and women who are not usable for the kingdom of God. He did not receive the miracle with the gratitude he should have. We're not to touch the glory. It's the foolish things of the world. And we must take heed lest we fall because all of us can fall into the trap of somehow thinking we have anything to do with anything. There was a man who came to church here on Sunday. He wrote me a very long note and he was new to the church and he got baptized on Sunday. It was his first time here. And I'm, gonna be, I'm trying to be kind to him, but he's complimenting me way too stinking much because it's got nothing to do with me. And, you know, he just, he's, he's, I get it. It's okay. You know what I mean? But he's saying things. I'm like, bro, I got to sit him down and go, bro, I'm a stinking vile sinner. Go ask my wife. Can I get an amen to that? It's not about us. It's all about him. Amen? If God does anything good, it's not because of us. It's in spite of us. So he gets all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. And I get it when you're, you know, you're new in the faith and you're thinking, like, I, I led you. Well, okay, but God did that. God did that. Amen? And you just show him grace. It's okay. But yeah, that's why when you give, don't give me compliments, because it's the Lord. Give the compliments to God. Can I get an amen to that? And so here we have him getting into the trap of taking compliments. And Hezekiah is not really crying out to the Lord, and he ceases to be humble. You know, he got 15 more years. You know what? He doesn't do anything good in that, that, those, those next 15 years. And just because we have more time doesn't mean we're doing more for God. If we have more time, may we be doing more for God. Amen? Why, does it, why are we still here? He's not done with us yet. He says this, verse 27, Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries of silver for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, for all kinds of desirable items, storehouses, for the harvest of grain and wine and oil and stalls, for all kinds of lamb stock, livestock and folds of flocks. Moreover, he provided cities for himself and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very much property. The same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. Here's what happens. And you see this in Kings. So some people come from a great distance because they hear that he had almost died and survived. And they came from a place called Babylon. And when the Babylonians came, Babylon was not a great force yet. They were literally like a part of the Assyrians and a small part of it. So when the Babylonians came, they were probably seeking to start a relationship with him because they were going to have their own kingdom. And obviously God had his hand on, on Judah. But you know what he does? He takes them and shows them all their riches. He gets arrogant. Well, let me show you all the stuff we've got. Here's, here's our gold storage. Here's our silver storage. Here's all the cattle that we have. Here's all the flocks that we have. Here's all our stuff. And what's going to happen is he's going to show them so much stuff. What do you think they might come back and do? They're going to rob the place. Because he is so full of himself and he's going to be bragging about all the stuff that he has, it's going to ultimately lead to their own destruction when Babylon comes back because they know where all the treasures are hidden. 
where all their stuff is. Final point, finish strong. Look at verse 31 and 32. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, his goodness, indeed, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers. They buried him in the upper tombs and the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. Then Manasseh, Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Now, Hezekiah has some detours at the end of his life, but was he a good and godly king? What's the answer? He restored worship. He brought God back to the people, you know, brought worship back, destroyed all the idols, tore them all down. When they were in a difficult spot with Isaiah, he cried out to the Lord. But wouldn't it have been even better if he could have just finished strong? Now, we know he's in heaven. I believe clearly he's in heaven. He's a godly man who had some difficult times. I think we all can relate to that, made some bad choices here and there. Amen? But praise God for Hezekiah because coming from Ahaz, who was sacrificing children to false idols, this guy was a mighty man of God who helped bring Judah and Israel back to serving the true and living God. So in closing, the spiritual battle we fight every day. You can't be used mightily by God without attracting enemies. Know that as the Lord's using you, expect it. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. One of the enemy's greatest tactics is to get you to doubt or question your faith. God will not be mocked. We should not take his name in vain. We should have reverence for almighty God. And when we speak his name, we should do it in a way that brings honor and glory to him. Amen. Prepare like it depends on you, praying, knowing that without him you can do nothing. Remain humble, broken, and usable for the kingdom of God, and may we finish strong. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. You are indeed a great and awesome God. We thank you for your word. Thank you for everyone's patience as we went through a lot of verses tonight. But Lord, I pray we would leave here strengthened, encouraged. People are here that are struggling. I pray that they would be courageous. And Lord, that they would rest in you and not be afraid. Lord, if we need other people to come alongside us, may we be transparent. May we seek prayer from others. So Lord, be glorified. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.